Good evening. Um, the scripture for this evening is Psalm 32. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, but uh, as you all probably know, it's printed right here. I'm going to read Psalm 32, and then we will all affirm together that this is God's word. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through the groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright of heart. This is the word of the Lord. Well, um, it's great to be here in the evening. We very seldom get to come, so this is as a family. So we live quite far away, so... Um, this is brilliant. We're really enjoying this. Um, psalm 32. This is a psalm of repentance. Uh, it's a, one of my favorite psalms, actually, that really is uh, one that I come back to time and time again. Uh, and I loved the liturgy here that we read through, pairing it up with Psalm 51. Uh, so really what I want us to do is just kind of take a look at the first five verses or so. There's, there's an awful lot here to unpack, but I want us just to think about what is repentance? What is forgiveness? I don't want to do too much, hopefully, although I'm known for doing too much. So uh, if you're the type that follows the news or perhaps the gossip column, you may have noticed in the past week or a few weeks that there have been some celebrities that have said some stupid things on social media, gotten in trouble, and they've had to make a public apology. Seems to be a frequent thing these days. I don't know about you, but um, I get a little bit cynical when I uh, hear or read about famous people doing stupid things and publishing some kind of statement. Uh, it raises questions for me like, uh, how sincere is this? Did they even write these words, or was it the hand of some PR guru paid to make this stuff go away? And would they actually have apologized if it didn't affect them, right? If it didn't hurt their bottom dollar, their reputation, their profession? 
And it's a sad reality if you think about it that uh, we live in a world where saying sorry has been professionalized. Uh, PR firms actually have terms for different kinds of apologies. Um, there's one which uh, is a thing, believe it or not. It's called the non-apology apology. You can look it up, the non-apology apology. Uh, these are um, really carefully scripted statements. Uh, you may have heard like, statements like, I'm sorry if my comments have offended anyone. Or in the third person, celebrity X um, regrets what they have said. They have made a mistake. Now, there's actually a legal reason why non-apology apologies are actually a thing. They're written to express regret, maybe sorrow, but never to admit guilt, never to take responsibility. So the goal of these non-apology apologies is to save face, but not suffer the consequences, monetarily, legally, professionally, or what have you. So call me a cynic, but I think I'm somewhat warranted uh, in my cynicism. And yet, uh, as I was reading a famous actor's uh, non-apology apology just this past week, who I will not mention, um, reflecting on it to sort of you know, take a dig at this person um, this very week, on that same day as I was reading this statement, I said something very hurtful to someone. And I found myself having to make my own apology. God has a tremendous sense of humor, doesn't he? And I think if we're honest, if we take a step back and think about it, we would all agree that when it comes to saying sorry well, we're not very good at it. None of us are, actually. It's not natural to us. It's, it almost feels like it's part of the human condition that we're terrible at it. But it's been that way ever since the beginning. You can go all the way back to uh, Genesis chapter 3. And you, and you think about repentance. You think about these things. We have, humans have always struggled with this. Humans have always struggled with saying sorry, admitting guilt, coming clean, making things right, repenting, turning around, restoring relationships and so on. One of the things that we do instead, we come up with all sorts of clever ways to circumvent apology, right? Self-justification. We make excuses. Uh, if we do apologize, half apologies, backhanded apologies, or as the young people say, um, sorry, not sorry. This is, this is how we operate. We've mastered the art, actually as human beings of non-apology apologies. And if any of this resonates with you, um, if saying sorry is something that you find very difficult, or maybe you've never fully grasped how to say sorry, and maybe you've never experienced what true liberating forgiveness in Jesus Christ actually feels like, 
the good news is that God has given us a really clear blueprint on how we can come clean before God, how we can repent, and then in turn, how we can experience forgiveness. And these Psalms of repentance, there are about six of them in, this, in the book of Psalms. Psalm 32 is one. Psalm 51 is the most famous one probably to you. Um, they are wonderfully helpful. They're prayers for us that teach us what true repentance looks like. So that's what we're going to do. We're just going to look at what is repentance? What is forgiveness? Um, the first thing we're going to do actually is think about what are the consequences if we don't learn repentance and forgiveness? If we continue to live in sin and not fully repent. Um, so let's start, take a look at verses 1 and 2. That's where we're going to start. I love these opening verses. They are packed with good biblical doctrine. Each line is very beautifully composed. But I want you to look in there, try and find the three different words that are used to describe sin. One of the features of Psalms of Repentance, I don't know why David wrote most of them, but he goes to the thesaurus and he literally tries to stack every word he knows of. Right? Psalm 51, confession. Go back, you can, you can see it there. He, in fact, uses four words in Psalm 51. But there are three words here, and the first one there, verse 1, the word is translated here as transgression, peshar, transgression. That word refers to um, rebellion, disloyalty, self-centeredness. Uh, and especially here, this takes on a vertical dimension. So that's what David has in mind. We are rebellious creatures. We defy the king. That's the first word. The second word, same verse, in that next line, it's translated sin, whose sin is covered. That's the word chata. Um, it uh, means basically to go off the path, to get lost along the way. Or uh, the same, sometimes I've heard it often at camps and whatnot, you may have heard of sin as being uh, missing the mark, to miss the mark. It's the same word. Okay. Um, there's a third word that David uses to try and get his head around what sin is. And that's the word iniquity in verse 2. And iniquity, or on that word refers to the, the stain and the guilt that sin causes in us. Okay? Three very different words. Why does David do this? Why does he stack all of these different words uh, in these psalms of confession, these psalms of repentance, I think the main reason he does this is to drive home the point that sin is a really, really serious thing. Sin is a really serious thing. Undealt with sin is poisonous. It is pervasive. It is corrosive. It will destroy you. And I think what he wants us to teach us here is that we need to come to grips with the extent of what we're truly like. We're treacherous people. 
We are people who care for ourselves and ourselves only. And as a result, we go off our own path. And all of those actions have caused us to be stained with guilt. We are marked as guilty. And this is really powerful, isn't it? From the very get-go, the first thing David does just kind of wants to wake us up. We're sinners. We are terrible sinners. And I think this is even more important for us who live in Western cultures to pay attention to. Right? We in the West, we, we don't like to talk about sin as much. In fact, if you think about our vocabulary, sin, the word sin, we attenuate it a bit, right? We just chocolate cake, sinfully good, right? You see what we're doing? We take the word sin, somehow bring the word good into it. Or I recently read uh, a description uh, uh, on the, uh, what are those called, um, endorsements on a book, wickedly and sinfully delightful, right? Somehow sin can be delightful. It just takes the edge off the seriousness of sin. And it's easy to almost then normalize it for us, right? Verses 1 and 2, we're being reminded, do not treat sin glibly or lightly because it will, it will infect you. It will ruin your relationships. It will destroy your life. And that's exactly what then David moves on to in verses 3 and 4. If you read um, those verses there, uh, this is his testimony. Let me read it for you. He says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, day and night. Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. The backdrop to these verses... um, pretty much all scholars agree, is uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12. You know this story very well. David, the king of Israel, sees a beautiful woman, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And he takes her, perhaps even against her will, commits adultery with her, and then to cover up his wrongdoings, he has his, her husband murdered. He violates at least five of the Ten Commandments in this act. Murder, adultery, stealing, false testimony, coveting. David knows he's a sinner. And instead of acknowledging, instead of doing what he knows is right, what does he do? Really important words. He kept quiet. He kept silent. In other words, he suppressed it. He pushed, shoved all of that down, hoping that perhaps it would go away, hoping that maybe time will just sort of get rid of this. He ignored what he knew was right. And what's remarkable, I don't know if you know this, but how long do you think he he lived like this? Committed adultery, had someone murdered, He kept silent about his sins for almost a full year. So you can understand verses 3 and 4. It ate 
him up. What David is trying to communicate to us, I think, in this psalm is that if we bottle up sin, there's nowhere else to go. It will seep out. It's that corrosive. Um, His body ached. His soul was tormented because he was living in rebellion against the living God. Um, I want you to notice, though, in the midst of these dark verses, verses 3 and 4, there is an ever so thin ray of hope. Notice who is causing the pain. Verse 4 says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Right? That's God. Your hand was heavy upon me. That may not sound like hope to you. God is punishing me. God is causing me to suffer on account of my sin. But think about it. This is the divine hand of God that David recognizes, the hand of discipline. Why? Because we know the Bible consistently teaches us. Hebrews chapter 12, there are a lot of places where God tells us he does not let his children sin with impunity. God doesn't give up on those who are his. His hand will be heavy on you. And though that may not seem hopeful, I hope you see that that hand of God is good news. Perhaps this is you right now. You may be suffering because of your sin. Emotionally, spiritually, even physically, which is what David seems to be alluding to. It's a sign that God loves you if you are in Christ. He disciplines those he loves in order to bring them to repentance and ultimately to restore us, to be in relationship with him again. And that's another thing I think that's really important to keep in mind. Relationship is and always has been the goal, the end goal of repentance to restore us back to our relationship with God and as it relates to the, on the horizontal with each other. That is the purpose of repentance. How does uh, David respond or to answer uh, the question, what does true biblical repentance look like? Let's take a look at uh, verse five. That's the best verse. It's, it's so clear. It is so straightforward. David uses three different words to describe the process of repentance. So let's um, uh, take a look at those. First, he says, he acknowledged his sin to the Lord. Uh, The sense here is that he made known something to God that he hadn't articulated before. I actually think that's probably the best equivalent of how we use in the English language the word confess. Um, It's sort of like his silence turned into an acknowledgement. That's really the sense there. That's the first word. The second word, he refuses to cover up. He does not cover up. He exposes. That's step two of biblical repentance. Um, In the Garden of Eden, think about this. Adam and Eve, they sin. What's the first thing they do? They cover up. They cover up. 
and here instead of hiding. It's another word used in Genesis. Instead of concealing our sin, David says we, he uncovers, he lays bare his sin before God as if to say, this is my sin. Would you take my sin? That's step two. We're going to come back to that because this is a really powerful picture here that gets um, fulfilled, as it were, in the following verses. Third step, according to the ESV, it says, he confessed his transgressions to the Lord. Um, this is the exact same word that is used to, uh, to say, to, uh, this is the word you would use to say if you wanted to praise God. What we just did in corporate singing was this word, praise God or to give thanks to God, right? When the Psalms, when it says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, it's this word. Just slightly confusing, right? But in the context, in the context of repentance, it kind of makes it. There's no perfect equivalent, but the best way to think of this verb is this act where we simultaneously uncover ourselves and we, and we say to God, I am a sinner, but we do it with the knowledge and the confidence and thanksgiving that God has already forgiven us. And I get that because uh, from places like Leviticus 16, Leviticus 16 is a chapter about the scapegoat, if you know what that is. Uh, God commands Aaron, he gives him instructions on how to atone for the sins of Israel. He says, lay both hands on the goat, right? And then he says, confess the sins of Israel upon it and then send it away. And the people of Israel would watch this goat fall off a cliff, right? And they would, they would give thanks to God for atonement. Um, by the way, this is exactly what we just did corporately. Every week in church, what do we do? We have a time of confession followed by the assurance that we are forgiven people. We always read scripture and we remind ourselves we are a forgiven people and so we give thanks in the midst of our confession. It's a really powerful, powerful word there. So acknowledge, uncover, and we confess with confidence and thanksgiving. That's the formula for biblical repentance, wholehearted repentance. David comes clean, as you can see, uh, verse 5, it just if you can imagine, months and months of just keeping in silent, keeping it all in, trying somehow to justify his actions. And verse 5 to me is like this dam that bursts open. He just says, God, here it, here it is all of it, my intentions, my actions, like my cunningness, my thoughts, here I am. And he comes clean, he appeals to the mercy of God, and that last line in verse 5, he is able to testify, right? Um, God forgave the guilt of my sin. He's utterly, completely forgiven. Which brings us to the third question, what does then true forgiveness look like? Or to put another way, what actually happens when we do, verse 5, like David, 
when we uncover, we acknowledge, and we just say to God, take this from us. Um, so there are three words for sin in verses 1 and 2. I love how this works. There are three verbs for repentance in verses 3 and 4. And if you go back to verses 1 and 2, there are actually three different words used to describe biblical forgiveness. And I think this is intentional because just one of those does not actually help us fully understand what happens when you're forgiven. You need all three of those. Okay, so let's go through these in turn. The first word found in the very first line, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. It's like, okay, that's just kind of the generic English word. This is the word that um, the simplest way to sort of explain it is to have something, a heavy weight, lifted up and removed. Okay, that's precisely what this word means. Blessed is the one whose transgression has been lifted up off of you so that you're not bearing it and it is removed. That's the first sense. Biblical forgiveness always involves the removal of the guilt and the stains of our sin. That's the marvel of the cross, which we'll get to in a second, but that is foundational to what it means to be a forgiven person. You are no longer guilty. Second word um, is in uh, the word there, it, uh, in the English, it's covered. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's also covered. <laughs> There's no other way to say it. Um, do you remember when we looked at uh, the, the step two of repentance? Step two of repentance. What does David have to do? He has to uncover. Wasn't it interesting here in the process of forgiveness, what happens? God covers. We uncover ourselves so that God can cover us. Biblical repentance requires that we lay our sins bare before God. Biblical forgiveness comes in and says, God will fully cover the shame, the guilt of your sins. And Please note, this is why it's so important that any attempt on our part to cover our sins is not biblical. It's futile, in fact. It is uh, a works-based atonement, to put it, I don't know how else to say it, that will never be sufficient. There is, there is not enough that we could ever do to actually sufficiently cover our own sins. Go back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, uh, to put it in simple terms, they lost their original righteousness, okay? Which is a fancy way of saying they were no longer in right standing with God which is what allowed them to be in a relationship with God in the first place. They attempt then, as we just said, right, to cover 
themselves to cover their nakedness of all things, right, with fig leaves. They tried to cover their nakedness. But do you remember the very, very last act of God before he banishes them from the garden? What does God do? He covers them with a garment. And that is a beautiful foreshadowing of what God does for us in Christ. And this is really important in understanding what forgiveness is all about. Here's how covering works for us. When you repent, when you say sorry to God, and when you are forgiven, here's how it works, right? We expose our sins, we turn to God, we stop hiding our sins from him like Adam and Eve did, like David did in verses one and two, three and four, right? And then it's at that moment where we uncover, we repent, where God clothes our nakedness. He clothes our nakedness. He covers our sin with the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And then I want you to think about Jesus on the cross. Jesus Christ was uncovered, stripped naked, endured the scorn, the shame of the cross. He takes our sins upon himself so that he might exchange our nakedness and our guilt put it upon him and his righteousness is what covers us. The garment of righteousness is what covers us. It's the great scandalous exchange on the cross. The third word for forgiveness is in verse two and I'm I'm just gonna have to be really quick here. Um, the Lord counts no iniquity. He counts no iniquity. Uh, the word count is very straightforward. Um, I see an accountant here. It means to, correct me if I'm wrong, impute or uh, ascribe a value or a debt, right? So it's that same idea even in Hebrew. So what verse 2 is saying to us is that there is no record of transgressions that will be kept for those who are in Christ as a result. Think about that. Those of us who trust in Christ for our sins, our sins don't have to be balanced. We're never going to go in the red. We're never going to have to make up for our transgressions because it's already been paid. In fact, it never made the books. It never made the ledger. So take those three words. I don't know which part of forgiveness is one that you need to really lean into and just be thankful for. But those are really powerful. True forgiveness involves lifting up, carrying away the weight and burden of the guilt that you bear. If you struggle with that, go back, meditate on that. True forgiveness covers the shame of those who have uncovered themselves before God with Christ's perfect righteousness. And lastly, true forgiveness does not count our debt. And I wonder how many of us live as if our deeds are written somewhere and haunt us. 
Let me end uh, with just a point of application, perhaps a question. It's a thought, something for you to mull over, something that um, I can't be prescriptive about. The Bible is clear that God either takes away our sin, it's removed from us, or, and there's no other alternative, the sin remains in us, okay? It's either removed or it's with us. And if it's in us, if we don't repent properly, right, it's a part of who we are, and we have to learn to live with it, to cope with it. And so the question that I want to, I want you to think about this, because human beings are very cunning. Every culture, every era, we've all figured out ways to cheat a little bit, right? To cope with guilt, sin, shame. And I think we all still have those tendencies in us. When sin is crouching at the door, we're tempted to find ways to cover ourselves. And so the question I want to ask you, I think a really helpful question is, how do you cover? What are your fig leaves that you sow, at least that you're tempted to sow? Do you live in denial like David tried to do for months, hoping it would just go away? Do you anesthetize yourself, cope with the pain by turning to people, turning to entertainment or substances, or, yeah, just to deal with the sting of that sin? Do you justify your sin by doing more that somehow if you are a benevolent, kind person, if you give to charities, if you fight for good causes, you think that you can outdo your guilt, kind of convince people that you're okay? Do you turn to work, become more productive so that others might see and you might convince yourself that you're important, you're better than, you relativize, you're better than those people? Or are you obsessed with how you look because in your exposed state you forget the gospel and you've lost a sense of beauty and you're desperate to reclaim that? Or do you perhaps allow your perfectionism to rule your life because you need that sense of order to make up for the things that are misaligned in your life? I don't know what your fig leaves might be but we can either acknowledge, fully cover, and confess our sins in faith, or we attempt to cover ourselves with our own feeble attempts at righteous living. I'm going to conclude with Romans chapter 4. It's in your insert. What I find absolutely brilliant about Romans chapter 4, which is sort of the climax of the gospel message for the Apostle Paul, um, he is meditating on this exact psalm. He quotes verses 1 and 2 there. And what is so wonderful is he ties biblical repentance, biblical forgiveness, as outlined in Psalm 32, and he shows us how it is fundamentally the gospel message. So let me close uh, by reading this, um, and hopefully... 
we uh, will be encouraged to just revel in the wonderful hope that we have uh, Christ covering our sins. Here's Romans chapter four. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then here's the citation. Blessed are those whose laws, lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Let's pray. Um, Father, uh, we acknowledge that our hearts are stubborn like mules, that we would rather sow fig leaves over receiving the free gift of your son's garment of salvation. And for those of us who are struggling to repent or um, struggling to believe that there is true forgiveness, would you help us to see the beauty of the gospel? Would you help us to turn to Jesus and to hide in him? Would you help us to identify our tendencies to cover our sins so that we might find grace in Jesus? We pray this in his name, amen.